Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to You Really Shouldn't Have. My guest this week is legendary rock and roll PR executive, Howard Bloom. Howard helped build or sustain the careers of some of the biggest names in music, including Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, Peter Gabriel, ACDC, Aerosmith, Queen, Kiss, Run DMC, and Shaka Khan, just to name a few. His most recent publication, Einstein, Michael Jackson and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll, has leapt to number one on Amazon's chart of best-selling music business books. We sat down to discuss his phenomenal career and also find out the worst gift he's ever been given. Howard, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Really great to have you here. James, it's a pleasure. Now, before dominating the world of public relations in the rock and roll business, I understand that science was your first passion from a very early age. Well, I was the least likely person ever to get involved with music. I, <laughs> yes, I got involved in microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 12. I, I accumulated my first scientific credentials when I was 12 years old. I, I uh, co-designed a computer that won science fair awards. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. Um, I sat down with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, my hometown university, and we debated Big Bang versus steady state theory of the universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And my mom, bless her, uh, arranged for me to be given tutoring and outside the box science by the guy who was the head of research and development for the company that made the valves for the first plane to break the sound barrier and the first plane to reach the edge of space. So you would never have expected that I would get involved with music plus um, when I was given violin lessons, one day I was standing in my living room trying to saw out some piece of what had formerly been music before I got my hands on it in front of the second violinist of the uh, Buffalo Philharmonic, the guy my mother had recruited to teach me. And all of a sudden I saw a fist the size of my head coming across my windscreen and saw it hit the violin and the violin flew 15 feet across the room to the velvet drapes on the other side of the room and fortunately fell on the crumple of velvet at the bottom and wasn't damaged. I then decided that I really wanted to get into jazz. And so I, I enrolled for a, a trombone class in my eighth grade class in grammar school. And within two weeks, I was thrown out of the class. So I was a total musical incompetent. All I could do was put six records on a turntable at once on the old-fashioned spindles the record players had and listen to them nonstop for three hours. That was the only skill I had in music. And how did the transition from science to public relations happen? How did that come about? I stumbled into something. Uh, when I was 12, uh, a, a girl turned her eyes in my direction, and she, which never happened, James, just never happened. And then she made eye contact, which was even more startling. And she said, I told my mother that you understand the theory of relativity. Well, I didn't understand the theory of relativity, but I wasn't going to confess that and be humiliated. So I jumped on my bicycle and drove to the local library when, the, when school was over and said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And the librarians knew me better than my mother did and went through the stacks and found two books. One was a great big fat book filled with equations. One was a little skinny book. 
Well, I tried to make it through the big bad book, and then at 8 o'clock at night realized that at 10, my mother was going to put me to sleep, and if I didn't understand the theory of relativity by then, I was going to be in big trouble, um, <laughs> humiliated the next day at school. So I turned to the little skinny book, and in the little skinny book, um, it was as if Albert Einstein reached out through the pages of the book, grabbed me by the lapel, put his nose up to mine, and said, schmuck, listen up. <laughs> If you want to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then express it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. In other words, Albert Einstein, through the pages of a book, told me, you want to be an original scientific thinker, you're going to have to be a writer, not just any writer. You're going to have to be a terrific, smashing, astonishing, delicious writer. So those were my marching orders. So um, eventually I had, uh, I had fellowships at four graduate schools in what's now called neuroscience. And, and I was up against this very bleak possibility. If I went to grad school, I would never get a chance to look for the gods inside. If you give paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit, how many gods are you going to see leaping like spontaneous bonfires? from the souls of these 22 people, zero, none. You will never see a God inside in your life, in your entire career. And that did not look acceptable to me. So I, I jumped ship and co-founded a commercial art studio and used it as a periscope position and, uh, and tried and, and got, well, managed to become a contributing editor to a couple of magazines, which was doing the Einstein imperative, you know, doing what he had said about writing. But I was getting up at six in the morning, going naked to this giant Remington manual typewriter, typing until eight o'clock, going into the art studio, and then coming home and sitting there with a pot of coffee, typing again until 11 o'clock at night. And it was getting wearying. I was getting tired. And somebody at a, a parapsychology conference, you know, mind readers and spoon vendors and stuff like that, came up to me and saw that I had a pad in my hand and I was busily taking notes on everything, figured I was a journalist and said, um, would you like to edit a magazine? And I thought, wow, if I edit a magazine, then I don't have to get up at six in the morning <laughs> to write. I can write during the day. So I said, yes. And in those days, we didn't. he gave me an appointment with the publisher of the magazine. In those days, there was no Google, as hard as that is to imagine. So we couldn't look up who you were having an appointment with. There was no way to figure out what this appointment was about, except that it was about a magazine. And when I walked into the publisher's office, it turned out to be a magazine about something I didn't know a thing about called rock and roll. And that's basically how I got into the rock and roll business. So eventually when, so I doubled the circulation of that magazine and Chet Flippo, one of the founding editors of Rolling Stone, credited with me with, found, me with founding an entirely new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine in his graduate thesis, um, which was a history of rock journalism. And, um, and, and my boss came to me, my publisher, after a year and a half and said, don't you think it's about time that you asked for a raise? Well, James, I didn't know anything about things like raises. <laughs> I'd never worked for anybody else before in my life. And I'd never anticipated being in the real world. Everybody knew I'd be a, a college professor from the time I was 10. So I thought about that and I said, okay. And I called a couple of my friends from the magazines that I'd written for. And, they, and I said, how much should I ask for? They said, tell me what you do. Now, I had replaced two people when I had become editor of the magazine. And when I left the magazine, they had to hire five people to replace me. So I explained what I did, and they said, well, you should get a 60% raise. 
So I came to my publisher and I told him the raise that I wanted. And he said, no, I can't afford that. And I gave him six months notice and I wrote a 57 page book on how to write the magazine and how to turn out the magazine. And I trained, I found him a really, really good writer and I trained him to be editor and I needed a job. And uh, one day the editor I'd hired say, said, there's somebody I want you to meet. And he introduced me to Seymour Stein, the guy who would eventually found, uh, who find Madonna, the, the founder of Sire Records. And Seymour had me hired by Gulf and Western, this giant conglomerate, to found a public and artist relations department for those 14 record companies. And, and that's how I got into PR. I knew nothing about it, except that I was on the receiving end of phone calls from publicists, and I could see what worked and what didn't work, which was extremely helpful. So I started my own PR firm, and a bunch of Seymour Stein's clients left with me, uh, Renaissance and the Climax Blues Band, who you've probably never heard of, but they were, they were very good. And uh, then I, through some people I'd gotten to know in the music industry, I got ZZ Top, who were the most hated band in North America, the Village Voice, one of the most influential magazines at that point, or newspapers in North America, said, quote, they have a sound like hammered shit at Gulf and Western. We had this record company called Paramount Records. It was one of our 14 record companies. And if Paramount signed something, you knew it was never going to go anywhere. So they had... Uh, they had a talent scout. And one day he walked into my office and he had the usual spiel. And this time it was a 13-year-old girl from Crown Heights in Brooklyn that he was talking about. But he said something that, that meant I could not possibly forget about it. He said, I've got her doing a showcase at the Plaza Hotel tomorrow at noon. Well, the Plaza Hotel was a five-minute walk from my office. <laughs> um, so I had to go there and see her. And we were in this nightclub setup. And all of a sudden this four foot eight inch squash looking African-American 13 year old walks out on the stage. And the minute she walks down to the stage, there's a ferocity in the air you have never felt before. And it feels like she's grabbed you by the esophagus and put your nose up to hers and is singing directly into your face. It was astonishing. And so the next day during the time I was at that company, we had zero staff meetings. We were given zero sense of direction, which for me, James, was perfect because it <laughs> meant I could do whatever the fuck I wanted to do. We had another, this, the conglomerate we were a part of, Gulf and Western, had an extremely successful film company called Paramount Pictures. And it was run by this little five foot four inch titan whose reputation we had heard. It was like, take 10 Napoleons, put them all together into one human, and you've got this guy who ran Paramount Pictures. And Paramount Pictures went to the people who ran Gulf and Western and said, look, that, that candy-ass little record company that you own, it's losing you money. If you make it report to me, I will make it make money. One day we walked in, the room was ablaze with light, and we were told we were having a staff meeting. What? A staff <laughs> meeting? We'd never had a staff meeting before. Um, so we walked in for the staff meeting. And our president started to clear his throat. He was a six foot two inch guy. He was at the head of the table and started talking about how we have to save money on pencils and yellow pads because we're losing money. And all of a sudden it felt like behind us at the door, a thousand laser beams had gone off. A hundred trumpeters were trumpeting, rolling in on a cloud filled with thunder. 
there came a man, and that man, as he walked through the door and walked down the length of that table, our president, who was six foot four when this all started, shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank <laughs> until he he until he looked five foot two, and then he slid off his chair like a jellyfish into the chair next to it, and the five foot four inch Frankie Blondes, the man of thunder and lightning bolts, um, took over the head of the table. And he looked at the list, and it was the list of records that none of us had ever heard of before in our lives. And he looked at record number one, and he looked at department head number one to his left, and he said, you, what are you doing about this record? And department head, you know, I had heard about bullshitting on oral exams, but I had never seen it. Now I saw it for the first time in my life. This guy spun a story so detailed, so gleaming that it sounded utterly and completely convincing unless you knew, like I did, that the guy had never heard the record before in his life and wasn't doing a thing about it. <laughs> Finally, he got to me, and I stood up and I said, Mr. Yablons, I'm not doing anything about this record. In fact, I'm not doing anything about any of the records on this list. They all come from companies so ethereal that we don't even have the phone numbers for the presidents of these record companies. But yesterday, I saw, and then I described to him what happened when I saw this tiny little 13-year-old um, from uh, Crown Heights. And he listened to what I had to say. He didn't say a word. He went silent. He simply walked out of the room. Well, as we were crowding through the doorway, the vice president over my head grabbed my right arm so hard that I had the marks of his fingers for a week on my bicep. Wow. And he said, you fucking none. If you ever do that again, you're fired. And I got to my office and my secretary was standing there waiting for me to come. And she said, you got a call from Mr. Yablon's office. Mr. Yablon's was the president of Paramount Pictures. He says he is gathering all of his department heads tomorrow at noon. He wants you there and he wants Stephanie Mills there. Stephanie Mills was the name of that squashed little African-American astonishment. Um, so I got Stephanie organized and we went up there. And from that point on, I was a permanent part of Paramount Records or Paramount Pictures staff. Whenever they were planning a blockbuster, the blondes told them, bring in Bloom, let him do anything he wants. Um, whatever it is, he will deliver for you. And, and that was my start actually in the film industry. So it's, so Stephanie Mills was one of my clients when I started my company and then it built from there, I was credited with reinventing public relations in the music industry. Billboard's Guide to Music Publicity did 20 pages on nothing but me, on what I call perceptual engineering. It was ridiculous. This is a textbook for college students learning about rock and roll publicity. And when people started to hear about me, I didn't go out looking for clients. I didn't have time. I was working too hard on the clients I had. And people would hear about me and clients would come to me. Um, clients like Prince, um, like the Jacksons, um, like Bette Midler. All of these clients came to me. I didn't pursue them. In fact, I turned down Bette Midler for a year. I said, look, you don't need me. I do hard things. Bette is so big that you can get a talking dog and train it to say Bette Midler. And any newspaper or magazine anywhere, uh, editor anywhere in the country will give you a cover. Will give the talking dog a cover in exchange for an interview with Bette Midler. And when the Jacksons started calling, I said the same thing. You don't need me. And for four months, they kept pursuing me. 
And um, in the case of Bette Midler, one day her assistant called and said, look, I'm not asking you if you'd work with Bette anymore. I'm telling you, you are a Bette's publicist. And it would be wise for you to be out here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning in Bette's living room to meet your client. Okay, Howard, I hear you got a couple of bad gift stories for me. Two bad gifts. And the strange thing is they were wonderful gifts. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I told you about Seymour Stein and his getting me this job at Gulf and Western because he was one of the record companies that was distributed by Gulf and Western. And I had a wonderful working relationship with Seymour. And then Christmas was coming. And this is when people like Steyer Records buy presents for all the people who worked on the records. And Seymour's wife, leaked the word to me that Seymour was getting me a Peugeot. Well, I thought, oh my God, Seymour's buying me an entire car? <laughs> That's amazing. And then the gift came, Christmas came, and it turned out not to be a Peugeot car, it turned out to be a Peugeot bike. Now, a Peugeot ah. bicycle is an astonishing piece of design. It's absolutely wondrous. And I should have been perfectly happy. <laughs> but since I had expected a car... <laughs> It was a huge disappointment. And, and the other gift that was the worst gift I ever got, that actually was the best gift I ever got, um, one day when I was sick in bed, one of the people taking care of me saw what a struggle I have. I'm manually incompetent. I just My hands won't do most of the things that normal hands will do. I can't catch a ball. I can't throw a ball. I can't do any normal things. So one of the people taking care of me saw how hard I was struggling with a knife and fork, which was a really, really arduous challenge for me. And she said, why don't you use a spoon? So I started using spoons. Now, I lost my first wife because I was sick. She left me after 34 years of marriage and divorced me. And I was desperate for another wife. So I found, and all I could do was operate online. Um, I was stuck in a bed. Um, so I found another wife online, and she turned out to be a nightmare. Um, she was a screamer. I didn't know there was a real world screamer. A screamer is a person who screams at everything about everything, no matter what. You just can't stop her from screaming. But she also had this astonishing gift for pushing your buttons. And allied with pushing your buttons was an astonishing gift for presents. So seeing how dependent I was on giant spoons, she bought me a set of a dozen of the most gorgeous giant spoons you have ever seen in your life, and I use them every night, and they're wonderful. But why was this a terrible gift? Because the divorce cost me more money <laughs> than I ever thought I would see in one place in my life. So this is the most ex expensive set of spoons that I will ever possess in my lifetime. <laughs> Your latest book is titled Einstein, Michael Jackson and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. What was the inspiration behind your decision to write the book? Well, first of all, I got out of the music industry in 1988. And I got out because I became, well, first of all, I needed to get out. I, I was halfway through writing my first book and I was stealing time early in the morning to write the book. It was back to my days of writing early in the morning and I'd half written it. And then I came down with a really serious illness. Um, ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome. And it was so vicious an illness that for five years I was too weak to talk. I couldn't utter a syllable. And for five years I was too weak to have another person in the room with me. That allowed me to, uh, I had 
ended my curiosities with rock and roll. I'd answered all the questions that I had wanted to answer. So when I was offered U2 as a client, I wasn't the least bit interested. I'd never cared for their music. When I was offered Mick Jagger as a client, I wasn't the least bit interested. You know, I'd run out of questions. And, but, but when you are successful in something, especially if you're a legend, and apparently I was a legend, your wife is never going to let you out of it, ever, um, because you represent status and you represent money. And yet I needed to go back to my science and, and start writing books. Um, and the illness gave me an excuse to go from music into what I needed to do, which is returning to my science and writing books. You can imagine what it's like to be a rock and roll legend and to try to reestablish your credentials in science when nobody remembers what you were doing at the age of 10, 12, and 16. So establishing my credentials in science was going to be very hard. Well, it took a long time, but I've now been published and or given lectures and scholarly conferences on 12 different fields, from quantum physics and cosmology to evolutionary biology, neuroscience, information science, biopolitics, um, governance, etc., uh, aerospace. Um, I've covered an awful lot of fields, which is no, no science person that I know has managed to be taken seriously in that number of fields. So I reestablished my credentials, and one day I was at Mel's Diner on Sunset Boulevard in L.A. with my friend Eric Gardner, who used to manage the Jeff- or used to be a road manager for the Jefferson Starship, and then was the manager for Todd Rundgren and Paul Schaefer and a whole and Timothy Leary and a whole bunch of people like that. And I was telling him my stories from my rock and roll days and his jaw dropped. And he said, you've got to write a book about this. And finally, I felt sufficiently comfortable that my science credentials had been reestablished to finally get around to writing this book. But this book's not just, yes, the story of some astonishing people. Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, A Search for Soul and the Power Pits of Rock and Roll, the new book, has the experience of finding the souls of people like Michael Jackson, um, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, people like that. Um, It's a series of adventures. And people tell me that even if you're not the least bit interested in music, it's a page turner and it can can change your life, which is about the best thing that you could say about a book. If we can talk about Michael for, for a second, I know that you've described Michael Jackson as the most incredible person you've ever met. What was it like firsthand to work with him? And what are the stories that you most remember from your time working with Michael? Well, I'll tell you, look, first of all, when I got into science at the age of 10, it was because a book appeared in my lap in my parents' big living room. And it said the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And look at things right under your nose as if you've ever, never seen them before and then proceed from there. The first law is the law of courage, and the second law, uh, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there, is the law of awe, wonder, curiosity, and surprise. Michael Jackson was the living incarnation of those first two rules of science. I never expected to see from, I never expected to see in any human being the quality of commitment and the quality of awe and wonder that Michael had. And to give you an example, the first time I met Michael Jackson, um, uh, we were out at Marlon Jackson's pool house. The pool house is a little building next to the swimming pool. It's just big enough to have one room on the first floor and one room on the second floor. And the room, the walls are studded with arcade um, game machines, which nobody can afford. You know, Pac-Man and things like that. Um, and in the center of the room is a billiard table. 
And the brothers and I were all crowded. They were kind enough to put me at the middle and flank me on either side. And we were looking at T-shirts and jackets. And I was trying to explain to them, you try to put on one of the most amazing shows anybody's ever seen. That means your T-shirts have to be amazing. That means your tour jackets have to be amazing. Everything you sell has to be amazing. And as we were discussing this, I heard the screen door open. And I knew Michael was coming. And again, remember, I didn't grow up with other kids, so I didn't know normal human rituals. But when I was 19, somebody tried to teach me that if somebody is entering the room that other people want you to meet, you walk up to them, put your hand out, and say, hi, I'm, and fill in the blank with your name. And the other person will say, hi, I'm, and he will fill in the blank with his name or her name. So I'd never done it before, James. But when I heard the screen door opening, I walked over. And first, you have to understand something. I'd written, I'd, I mean, I'd read a thousand articles on Michael Jackson, a stack of articles that high. And every single one of them said, Michael Jackson is a bubble baby. So if you put your hand out to him, he will withdraw in fear. So I put my hand out and I said, hi, I'm Howard. And the person coming through the screen door said, hi, I'm Michael. And we had a perfectly normal handshake, a little lighter than many handshakes. It certainly wasn't trying to crush me and show how macho he was, but it was a normal, friendly human handshake. And I said, look, I've got a press release that I need to get your approval on. And uh, where can I read it to you? And he said, well, let's go up the stairs to the room on the second floor. The room on the second floor was stacked floor to ceiling with amplifiers and keyboards. So Michael found an amplifier to sit on. I found an amplifier to sit on. And I started to read Michael this story. Now, something you have to realize, I'd been obsessed with poetry since I was something like 14 years old. Um, when I was at NYU in undergraduate school, the poet in residence thought I would be the next great poet to come out of NYU. And he kidnapped me to edit something I didn't want to edit at all, the literary magazine. And um, I turned it into an experimental graphics and literary magazine. And we won two National Academy of Poets prizes. So my writing, and remember, Albert Einstein had told me you have to be a brilliant writer since I was 12 years old. So for me, writing was not just a hack proposition. It was the most intense of my arts. So I read the first two sentences to Michael, and Michael went, oh. And I read the next two sentences, and Michael went, oh, oh, slumping ever further in his seat, until finally he said, did you write that? That's beautiful. No one had ever seen all of the art hidden in a simple press release before, and no one has ever seen it since. The only person who ever saw it was Michael Jackson. Wow. Then we went downstairs, and there was a meeting with the art director from CBS. Now, remember, I had jumped ship from my four graduate fellowships in neuroscience by starting an art studio with the artists that I had recruited for this magazine that I turned in to an experimental graphics and literary magazine. And um, so I knew, I knew all of these artists. They were legends in the business. And these were not just ordinary vinyl portfolios. These were hand-tooled cherry wood, hand-tooled leather, and the most expensive artists in the business. And the art director slid the first portfolio across the green of the billiard table at us. Now, Michael and I were standing elbow to elbow. It was my right elbow up against Michael's left elbow. It was my right shoulder up against Michael's left shoulder. Um, and my left knee, right knee up against Michael's left knee. And the brothers were crowded around us, pushing us together. 
And Michael started to open the first page of the first portfolio, which is by this amazing artist named Michael Whalen. Um, and as he saw the first inch, he went, oh, and his knees began to buckle. Oh, 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 oh. It was the first time in my life I ever, and possibly the only time in my life, I've ever seen an aesthetic orgasm. And as Michael's knees buckled further and further because my knees were up against his and my elbows were up against his, I could feel what his body was doing. And Michael was doing something that William Blake talked about, which is seeing the infinite in the tiniest of things. He saw more in that first square inch of an illustration than Michael Whalen, the artist, had ever seen. It was one of the most astonishing things I had ever seen in my life. And all of a sudden, I was up against a degree of awe, curiosity, wonder, and surprise I had never imagined could exist. The second law of science had come to life. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there right at my right elbow. It was astonishing. So Michael became the most important person I've ever met in my life. He stood for every ideal that I had. And I was so overwhelmed by Michael. So beyond impressed with Michael, he meant so much to me personally that I do this radio show in North America. It's, it's on 545 radio stations. It's the highest rated overnight talk radio show in North America. And I've done it uh, 345 times so far. I just did it last night. And I got a call after five years of doing this radio show from one of my producers saying, could you please stop? talking about Michael Jackson <laughs> in every appearance you make. I hadn't realized how obsessed I was with Michael because of what Michael stood for. Howard, wrapping up, if you could go right back to the beginning of your journey and give yourself a gift, what gift would you give yourself to help to get where you are now? What I would give myself, I suppose, is fame. Why? Because when I was a kid, when I was 10 and lost, two guys reached out across a distance of 350 years to save me. And they were Galileo and Anton von Leeuwenhoek. So my job is to reach out across the next 350 years and catch the next poor, confused kid and give him a sense of a reason for living. And to do that, you need a platform of fame. I'm on the very furthest fringes of fame. And it's not that I want fame for the sake of my ego, although I'm sure my ego would just eat it up, but I want it for the sake of being able to reach out over those next 350 years and save the next kid. And finally, Howard, where can people find out more about you and what you do? It's howardloom.net and the bio on, on me in there, there's a short one and a long one, will tell you more about me than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> and it'll show you my seven books and it'll even explain how they're all related to each other even though they seem to be wildly divergent topics. They're all part of a big picture. And, uh, and, if you want, and look, if you, too, want a life of adventure so you can put together a big picture and bring things into the realm of human knowledge that have not been a part of human knowledge before, then I welcome you on the wild frontiers of what I call omnology, the aspiration to omniscience. Um, and you can read the Omnologist Manifesto on that website. And by all means, if it inspires you, email me. Fantastic. Howard, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Well, thank you, James. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. 
My chat with Howard was quite extensive and he told many more stories than I had time on this podcast to fill. If you'd like to hear the extended version of his interview, head to badgiftspod.com and click the bonus content option on the menu, where you'll find a longer version featuring many more stories from Howard about his times with Michael Jackson and his public relations work. Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com.